Good morning, everyone. Yep. Um, hi, I'm Kevin. Uh, I've been introduced already. A uh, long-term member of King's Church at Mid-Sussex. You know, the, the group that meet in the big blue building on the uh, industrial estate in Burgess Hill. As somebody recently said to me with the large toilets, but I'm not sure we really want to be known for that particular fact, but, but it, it is true. Um, married to Jackie, who's here with me today. We've got a daughter. She's at college uh, in the New Forest at the moment. Ah, connections with Haywards Heath. I had my first job in Haywards Heath back in the early 1980s. And as somebody reminded me, actually, even this morning, um, I'm a member of the hospital radio station um, up at the Princess Royal Hospital. So we've just heard Mark 9, um, 2 through to 13. Uh, the same uh, transfiguration account is given also in Luke's Gospel in the 9th chapter and in Matthew's Gospel in the 17th chapter. So I've got the, uh, the ability and the privilege, really, to be able to sort of cross over into those as well, to just draw out a few additional truths this morning, I think. So it all actually begins by Jesus in verse 1 saying, Truly I say to you that some who are standing here today will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come in power. And yes, that's right, three of his disciples are about to get a glimpse of the future glory of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom that is coming in power at the transfiguration. So the action all begins with Peter and James and John uh, they're taken up on a high mountain by Jesus, and uh, the so-called inner circle, the three inner circle of disciples, the ones who'd previously witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter back in Mark's uh, 5.37, uh, and then later in Mark's gospel, it's these three alone that will be with Jesus during the moments of his greatest trial in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. And the high mountain, most commentators would agree, is probably Mount Hermon outside of Galilee. It rises up to almost 2,800 metres. Uh, that's 9,166 feet in old money uh, above sea level. So it was, yeah, it was quite a mountain. And there we read that he was transfigured before them. And his physical appearance was transformed before Peter and James and John. It was a manifestation of the glory that Jesus had before his incarnation, before he appeared in human form, before the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us as we celebrate, of course, at Christmas. The transfiguration also looks ahead to his future exaltation um, after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he's ascended back into heaven. It's his final state, of course, something that Daniel sees, the prophet Daniel, in their vision in the seventh chapter of his book, and then that John the Apostle, now an old man, sees when he's exiled on the island of Patmos, a stunning encounter that's recalled in the first chapter of Revelation. But here the three disciples have the privilege of seeing the glory of Christ even before he's glorified at his resurrection and ascension. The transfiguration gives us a glimpse, if you like, into Jesus' divine nature, as the writer to the Hebrews says, he says that Christ is the radiance of the divine glory. And Peter himself, uh, many moons later, will one day recall in 2 Peter 1.16 how we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So here we read that his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them, one version says. And Matthew adds that his face shone like the sun. It's an amazing 
amazing appearance, isn't it? Luke kind of pulls these two things together and says that while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. From these vivid descriptions of that appearance, I think we're supposed to understand that the transfiguration's not about Jesus being lit from the outside as Moses was when he stepped into God's presence in Exodus 34. We read there that Moses, when he reappeared to the children of Israel, the, the skin on his face shone and he was forced to put a veil over his face to hide uh, the glory of God from the children of Israel. No, that's not what we're, it's about here. What we're seeing here is that Jesus, at the transfiguration, the light of the world radiates from the inside out. Moses merely reflected God's glory at a surface level, if you like, but Jesus radiates God's glory from his inmost being. Talking of Moses, yeah, suddenly Moses and Elijah appear to them in verse 4, and they're talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, of course, are those two Old Testament characters of great stature, it has to be said. They're portrayed as the representatives of the Old Testament law in the case of uh, Moses and the uh, Old Testament prophets in the case of Elijah. Jesus has already told his followers that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I think we're meant to see that just as Jesus' earthly ministry is a fulfillment both of the law and the prophets, which he does perfectly, that in doing so he's proven to be so much greater than Moses and Elijah. Prominent, well-known, revered characters, but nonetheless flawed Old Testament characters. Like all of us, their flaws uh, were evident. I don't, uh, Mark doesn't tell us specifically Uh, what the three men are talking about. But Luke's account does give us a bit of an insight into that. Luke says that they were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I'm in the process of a departure in my own life at this time. Um, Having worked for the same employer for the last uh, 36-plus years, I handed in my notice just last month. And my working life, which begun in Burrell Road here in Haywards Heath, back in the early 1980s, is kind of coming to a a, a conclusion, if you like. My departure from the workplace with a long association with Gatwick Airport ends on the 30th of April. And, you know, it it feels like a big deal, and I'm regularly popping it into the conversation, like this morning. Jesus, too, uh, as, as we know, three years previously, he'd given up the day job, the family business as a carpenter, to pursue a God-given ministry, proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. But his earthly mission, his three years of preaching and teaching, of healing the sick, of even raising the dead, Jairus' daughter, it's all going to end in a matter of days and weeks. The Greek word Luke uses here uh, for departure is exodus, which should be a a word that we're familiar with, of course, from the second book of the Bible, it describes Israel's departure or exodus from Egyptian slavery. For Jesus Christ's departure encapsulated the impending death, his impending death on the cross, his divine vindication through his bodily resurrection from the dead and his ascension from the Mount of Olives back into glory. Any casual reader of the gospel surely cannot fail to see how the imminent death and resurrection looms so large in Jesus' thinking 
and in his frequent references, although his disciples, uh, particularly the three, are consistently slow on the uptake. The next to speak is dear old Peter, who Luke reveals with John and James had been sleeping through the early exchanges, uh, just as you would soon be caught napping in the Garden of Gethsemane at Jesus' greatest hour of trial. Peter, we're told, uh, uh, didn't know what to say as the disciples were so frightened. Yeah, I'm not surprised. We're told 365 times in the Bible not to fear. That's one for each day of the year, although we may have to recycle one of those promises this coming Thursday. But here we're witnessing a kind of fear which is not that sort of fear at all. It's a godly fear. It's the common experience of all people in the Old and New Testament when they witness the awesome reality of God's presence. Rabbi, says Peter, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter proposes to set up some sort of permanent memorial that's going to capture the event in the memory. Three identical earthly habitations for three heavenly beings to record the site where heaven touched down on a high mountain, just as it had done in an insignificant stable in Bethlehem when Christ, the child, tabernacled among us. Peter had no realisation that these three men were not actually the same. They're not worthy of equal honour. It's the Son of God, Jesus, who ultimately is the builder of every house, we're told, in the book of Hebrews. And of course, he's the perfect fulfilment of the law represented by Moses and of the prophets represented by Elijah. He alone stands above the other two men. Peter, I think, had gotten confused whether because he's witnessing a fearful and awesome one-off lifetime event, wow, it was, it was that, or whether it's because he'd just woken up from his slumber, we're not actually told. But, you know, whatever's going on in Peter's mind, he's not really in tune with God the Father because God the Father now breaks in and it says that a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The cloud represents the manifestation of God's presence and the words that accompany it, an endorsement of God the Son from the very mouth of God the Father, are surely meant to point us back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Immediately after he'd been baptised, you'll remember the Father spoke nearly identical words over his beloved son. Before Jesus had begun any ministry, he'd just finished the day job, hadn't he? Before he'd done any good works at all, God the Father lavished his loving approval on his son. We too should remember well that God is pleased with each of us whenever we take even the smallest steps of obedient faith. At the transfiguration, unlike at Jesus' baptism, God adds these words, listen to him. Listen to him, says God the Father. Listen to understand my son's unique messianic purpose. Maybe we're supposed to recall the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 when he says, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. Literally, give attention above all else 
because Jesus' teaching and ministry supersedes all the law and all the prophets. Jesus is not merely equal to Moses and Elijah, he's far greater. And anyone who does not listen to the Messiah of God rejects the God who sent him. You know, the concept of the Jewish Messiah was widely misunderstood by the crowds in Jesus' day, but also the disciples themselves. He, he was much more than just a miracle worker, much more than just a prophetic preacher and teacher. He is the very light of the world. At this point, we're told that Moses and Elijah vanish from the scene and the three disciples are left with a vision of Jesus alone. The Christian life, for sure, is about speaking. It's about making our petitions, about making our prayer requests to God the Father through Jesus Christ, as we have done even this morning on many occasions. But it's more about listening than it is about speaking. Listening to the one who has the words of eternal life. The one who said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one enthroned above who holds the keys of death and Hades with powers and principalities in submission to him. That's some of the descriptions the book of Revelation gives us. You know, we live in such a distracted generation, much more so a quite obvious statement than first century Palestine. I mean, the disciples hadn't yet taken out their first mobile phone contract. They weren't on social media. There was no internet banking. TV box sets had not been invented and nobody had signed on to Spotify. Distractions, all these that crowd into our modern lives, not wrong in themselves, but they have the potential, don't they, to crowd in and um, take our attention away. I was talking to my wife recently about, let's have a technology-free day, and we concluded that it's almost impossible in this day and age to do that, but we'll give it a go maybe. It remains excellent spiritual advice, I think, for us to do as Mary did, to sit at Jesus' feet just listening to what her Saviour had to say. Whether we do that individually or corporately, I think we do need always to remember to learn to listen well. So the main spectacle is all but over now, for the time being, but the opportunity to progress with self-disclosure is still there on the long walk back down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead, verse 9 tells us. You know, I was thinking, why is it that quite a few times in the Gospel, Jesus is heard specifically forbidding people to relate what they've seen or received from him until after the resurrection? And I came across this. Theologians call it the messianic secret. And it threads right through the Gospels. So in Matthew's Gospel, it's in Matthew 8, 9, 12, 16, and here in 17, 9. Don't tell anyone, Jesus repeatedly says to us, or to them, to them. But why? I think it's as much to do with the problem of a case of mistaken identity as anything else. In Mark 8... Peter is commended for declaring to his master, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You did well, Peter. But then almost in the next breath, he's sternly rebuked by Jesus when he tries to dissuade him from taking that hard road to the cross. Peter and the other disciples <clears throat> are a bit like the blind guy in Mark 8 
after Jesus had spat on his eyes, it says that he saw people, but he could only see them walking around a bit like trees. But then when Jesus laid his hand on the man's eyes again, we read that he saw everything clearly. The inner three seemed to be in that kind of fuzzy halfway stage. The penny had dropped as to the identity of the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, um, was uh, what uh, uh, Peter was able to proclaim. Um, uh, but, but they were still some way off base in terms of their understanding of the purpose of why he had come to earth. What was his earthly mission? They thought Jesus had come to take on the Roman Empire by revolution. But Jesus knew that he'd come as a suffering servant, that he was the meek lamb who would lay down his life for the sins of the people to reconcile man to God through the cross. In fact, even on the other side of Gethsemane, where the three again were with Jesus in the garden, during his betrayal and arrest, Peter's still swinging his sword around under the misconception that the battle with the dark powers of this world is going to be won by violent action against fellow men rather than by selfless submission of a spotless lamb to the will of God. Jesus is careful to avoid stirring up misunderstanding of his messianic identity. He's keen to quash any popular movement which might seek to raise him up as a political freedom fighter that block and then block his pathway to Calvary where he will suffer and die to pay for the sins of the people. His disciples needed to understand that there would be a gruesome death followed by a glorious resurrection. And so verse 10 tells us that his disciples seized upon this rising from the dead statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. The final three verses of Mark's account centre around a prophetic promise in the final book of the Old Testament, which indicated to them that before all these things happened, the prophet Elijah would first return. I've just read the book of Malachi, which the last book of the Old Testament, only four chapters, and the second to last verse of that book says, Behold, uh, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jewish scholars had interpreted this. They were banking on a literal return of Elijah on the last day before the general resurrection of the dead takes place. Jesus said, No, that's a wrong interpretation. He contradicts the popular expectation which hoped for a literal return of Elijah and says instead that the fulfilment of this verse in Malachi is found in the ministry of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. I say to you, Jesus said, Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. And in the same way, I, the Son of Man, I'm going to be treated with contempt and suffer at their hands too. John the Baptist had come in the spirit and power of Elijah and he had been treated shamefully, ultimately, of course, being beheaded by King Herod. Jesus said, my fate's a bit like John's. It's been sealed. I'm going to be treated with contempt. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. His suffering predicted by another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter. Let's draw this together, uh, the few that these thoughts together. The transfiguration as a spectacle 
I believe, is a one-off event that does exactly what it says on the tin. It provides confirmation that the kingdom of heaven has finally landed on planet Earth, that the one who tabernacled among us for less than 35 years was none other than the suffering servant who Isaiah saw in that prophetic vision from chapter 42 onwards. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was none less than the Holy Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. He's God's eternally begotten Son of the Father, God the Son. The Holy Spirit's been impressing on me of late the crucial need for strong personal identity. And you know, Mark, chapter 9 peels back another layer of disclosure on the identity of Jesus Christ. Many at the time he walked on earth, and still today, believed Jesus to be just a good man, even a prophet, a worker of miracles, a fine ethical teacher, someone who spoke with conviction and authority, yes, but not the eternally begotten Son of God. But it's not enough to think of him, of Jesus, only in these terms. We must be convinced that he is the God-man whose cruel death on the cross, whose subsequent bodily resurrection is sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world, yet needing to be applied at an individual level too. Here and now, perhaps, today, in Haywards Heath Baptist Church in February 2024, if I want to enter the kingdom that was peeled back for the three disciples on the holy mountain, I must believe that Jesus died for my sins personally, and that he's alive today. Because of his resurrection from the grave, the tomb is now empty. It's not enough just to recite creeds or sing worship songs and believe, um, unless we believe, sorry, that he died personally for us. If you've not known that forgiveness of sins, if you've not known the fatherhood of God, the adoption as a son or a daughter, can I encourage you today? Today might be that day when you step over that threshold, the day uh, when you have your own blinding revelation of the Son of God. We'll be around, I'm sure, after the service this morning. Um, if anybody specifically wanted prayer in that area, or perhaps any other area. So thank you for listening.